So we often talk of you know, money, sex, power. Uh, Tim Keller's got a great book called Counterfeit Gods, uh, and it's about these three things. But I want to go a little bit deeper this morning. What is it that drives our desire for money, sex, and power? You know, I've, I've been working through uh, Sources on the Self by Charles Taylor, and, and the book is essentially how did, how did we come to the point where we have in terms of what we see as what makes us us. Our, our, our understanding of ourselves, what does it mean to be a self? What does it mean to be a, a human being? What is it that drives us? What is it that we see as important? And he basically traces the history from Aristotle about the things that have made us us. How do we think of ourselves in light of all of the world and what is it that makes us human and what is it that makes us, uh, ha- what, what is it that causes us, what things cause us to believe about ourselves what we believe. And so it's a kind of a history of philosophy about how we think about ourselves. And he identifies three driving values that we have in our day and age. Three driving values. The first one is that we, we, we hold up human dignity, but human dignity comes from our autonomy and freedom. So our ability to choose, our ability to choose, our ability to say that we are not really in the control of anybody else. So that's why we have, you know, in, in terms of um, this huge debate over abortion, the one side has the vision of sacredness of life. The other side has this vision of human dignity is found in our ability to choose. And so it's, 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 it's tantamount to slavery to not be able to have a choice about what you're going to do with your body. And so it's just different visions of what it means to be a human being. That's what's behind most of our culture wars these days. So human dignity through our autonomy, our independence, our freedom from authority, that's one value. The second one is meaning and fulfillment through the everyday things of family and work. So everybody's ability to pursue love, everybody's ability to pursue a family. So again, if you think of the culture war issue of, of, of gay marriage, this is at the heart of it. Again, on one side, there are values around human sexuality that they hold to be sacred and necessary and true. And the other side is an understanding of, again, what it means to be a human being. If, if, a, if, we, re, if we restrict the ability that people have to make a family, to love who they want to love, it, again, it, it goes against what they understand to be human. The third thing is this, what he calls, what Charles Taylor calls a, a universal, um, universal benevolence, okay? Our sense of being a human being, which we, you know, we want to think of ourselves as good. That's essentially a lot of what drives us to do what we do, but how we define good is that's kind of what we're talking about, our moral sources. He says we, we have a, a, a universal desire to, to be good, and we are good through the doing of good things. And so we, we, humanity has a universal responsibility to do good to others whenever they are, whenever anybody else is in need. 
Okay? So those are the three things. Human dignity through freedom and autonomy and independence, our ability to choose. Um, meaning and fulfillment through, through the everyday things of family and work. And a sense of being good by doing good. So these three values then underlay whatever we choose to pursue to fulfill these things. Not just money, sex, and power, but everything is driven by these, by these values. Now, one of the things that is true of, of any worldview or of any people is that we often can't articulate what drives us. It's, it's in the air we breathe. It's the culture that we're in. One of the things that we've seen throughout this series is that we can't help be, but be affected by the culture that we're in, all right? We are going to be consistent with the world that we live in in a lot of ways. Now, the, the problem with these three values, well, let me take a step back. Um, these three values are values that in and of themselves are good in a lot of ways, there is a problem, however, in that these ideas don't just come out of nowhere. Right? Ideas, ideas don't just emerge out of nothing. They are historically developed, and that's what Charles Taylor has made an attempt to do, is just explain where we've come to from where we've been. And so his argument is that these things are all founded upon earlier ideas, most of which have come from some sort of biblical religion. The problem that, one of the, one of the problems that we face as a culture is that we hold on to values that have some foundations in biblical religion, but we no longer affirm biblical religion. And so when asked, what is the basis or authority of your value? Like, okay, I, I, we would affirm in a lot of ways human dignity, autonomy, independence, all right? God has created each and every one of us in his image, and slavery to others is not a biblical thing. It's not a good thing. So we would all affirm the need for a sense of, of human dignity simply because we are valuable people. But if you if you pull away biblical religion and ask, okay, why is there inherent value in human beings? Explain to me where that comes from. Our modern day and age is inarticulate. It can't explain with any basis of authority where these things come from. The second thing, family and work. Yeah, we would all affirm the importance of family, the importance of work. God established those in his creation of man and woman, put them in the garden. They were going to be a family. It's going to be the basis of all social life in his creation. And he gave them work to do. We would affirm. Biblical religion affirms the value of family and work. But if you remove biblical authority, biblical religion as any sort of authority or basis and say, okay, explain to me why there is such value around love and family and work, they, they, our culture is inarticulate. I watched a, a, a debate between uh, Alasdair McIntyre, who's a British 
British philosopher and theologian and brilliant man, and then uh, Sam Harris, who's a prominent atheist these days, and they were having this exact same argument. And Sam Harris just, his, his, he has, where he goes as he's being pushed into defending the basis of his ideas, he's just said, well, it's just because that's the way it is. We all would recognize it. It's common sense. We need to be able to articulate and have a basis for the things that we hold to, to, to be valuable, things that we pursue. Where is it that they come from? And we would all agree that doing good is a good thing. Where does it come from? Well, prior to the emergence of Christian charity, uh, this idea that all human beings are deserving of good and the, the, you know, the kind of the golden rule idea, do unto others what you would want done to you. Okay, Prior to the emergence of that idea within Christianity, uh, that's not how the world operated. All right, um, The world operated according to the, the vision of the world that you see in Game of Thrones, if you watch that, which I don't watch it, but I'm, it's just violent, abusive, horrible, dark, Day after day after day after day. And anybody that is a student of history at all would have to acknowledge that. And so these are good things that our, that our culture values to some degree in various ways um, because they come from biblical religion. If you remove biblical religion, can we continue to sustain any sort of these good values? And that's the big question. Again, we have to be able to answer where... It, where does your sense of values come from? What is the basis? What is the authority? And so what happens is that our contemporary worldview, the contemporary values that we hold, in some ways, um, are parasitical. They are dependent upon the ideas of other worldviews. They are dependent upon, again, in some ways and to some degree, Biblical religion, Christianity and Judaism. So we have to, so, you know, we, we can say, okay, that's the world, and, and then there's us, and yeah, we don't want to be like the world. Um, but we have, to do, we have to ask ourselves the question, to what degree are we like the culture that we're in? To what degree do we hold um, personal autonomy as, as, a, as an ultimate value? Independence as an ultimate value. Freedom from authority as an ultimate value. To what degree do we hold family and work as an ultimate value? And the product of work, money, as an ultimate value. Do we put our sense of self, our sense of being good as a self, in what we do? Does our value revolve around the good works that we engage in? So we have to ask ourselves these questions because if we don't, we can fall into the same error that Moses is warning Israel about. Do not be like the nations that you're going to go in and possess. Avoid the culture. And so there's three main points that Moses makes about uh, what it means to love God. Because that's his big idea. Love God. First and foremost, love God. He makes three points. First of all, recognize that we will absorb the false gods of our culture. We will absorb the false gods of our culture. We will be tempted to reject authorities in our lives. 
I mean, I, th I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we all have that tendency. You know, it, 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 um, it's a product of our culture. You don't have to spend very much time in the public schools these days to see that the culture inflicts our kids. Our kids are not responsive to authority. Very different if you go into traditional cultures. I spent a week in India and just observed some situations. Uh, these ki the kind of rejection of authority doesn't exist in, in the children that you can observe. This is why there is such a strong prohibition in, in God's commands here to Israel to not intermarry. He knows that if they intermarry, their, their love for their spouses that they're pursuing, young men pursuing young women, young women pursuing young men, whatever, they're going to love that person more than they love God, and it's going to draw them into idolatry. So that's the first thing. We have to assume that we will become like our culture if we are not careful to understand the values that our culture holds and where they agree or where they, and where they disagree with what Jesus Christ has called us to. The second thing is that recognize that if we fail to love God first, that is going to stir up God's jealousy and bring upon his wrath. So this idea of God being jealous, God longs for our affections. God longs for our affections. We're commanded not to be envious. Envious is, I want what another person has. Jealousy is this desire for the affections of others. And God is fully within his right to long for and to be jealous for our affections because he has created us. He has created us. He has created us to love him. And in our love for him, we're then able to love others. So God is fully within his right to, to demand from us our affections. And he is fully within his right to get angry when we don't give, them, give him our affections. Just as um, a, a married couple, if, if one of the couples becomes unfaithful, that the, the betrayed spouse is going to get angry, and they are within their right to be angry because there has been a promise made at the beginning of that marriage that they would remain faithful to each other, and you entrust yourselves to each other, and you build a life together. And so when one person betrays that covenant, the other person is going to get angry. They are fully within their right. And so in God's anger, he meets out his wrath. He meets out his wrath. Now, we've seen God meet out his wrath throughout the book of Exodus against Egypt and against Israel, against foreign nations. That was distracting for me because <laughs> I ping my kids, you know what, to find my iPhone device when they don't answer my phones or my text messages, and that's what it was. But it, I didn't do it. <laughs> my family hates it when I do it. So anyway, uh, so we've seen God meet out his wrath. 
But we don't see that kind of meeting out wrath today, or at least we don't know. We don't have a prophet saying, you know, God is going to bring a drought upon this land if you don't follow him. We don't have those kinds of things happening today. But there's another way that God meets out his wrath, and this is described in Romans chapter 1. God will withdraw grace. We've learned from the book of Colossians that Jesus Christ sustains everything. Okay, so, you know, depending on how much chemistry or physics that you've taken, we all know that, for those of you that have studied these things, that there are, there are all kinds of forces happening um, constantly that keeps everything together. All right, not to, I mean, that's an atomic level, and then you've got, you know, the entire universe. The Bible says that Jesus is holding all of it together, all right? That, that this world doesn't just flow into a state of complete corruption, which I know it sometimes seems like that's what's happening, but there is a lot of grace and a lot of beauty and a lot of life in this world that Jesus continues to sustain. And what happens when God extends and meets out his wrath in our day and age is that he withdraws that. He withdraws that as individuals, and we see in Romans chapter 1, he he. He, he does that to cultures, cultures that move away from him. He says, okay, I'm going to give you over to your sin. You want independence? You want freedom? You want freedom from any sort of law or restraint? You want to do whatever you want to do anytime you want to do it? I'll let you, and we'll see where that goes. We'll see where that goes. That's how God meets out his wrath today on an individual level, and on a complete societal and national level. And so the third thing, so recognize that we're going to be absorbed into our culture. Second thing, God longs and is jealous for our affections, and so this is a warning. This is like, you know, a negative motivation. If you, if you fail to give God your love, you are going to experience his wrath because he, he wants it so bad. And he wants it because he knows. He, he doesn't want it just because of personal reasons. You know, we long for the affections of our family members. We long for the affections of our church family because we do feel some sort of benefit and appreciation and affirmation from it. But, and God has that. God has that. But God also has this. He knows that if we try to live life apart from him, it's going to bring death into our lives. It's going to bring suffering. It's going to bring shame and guilt and fear and isolation. So God is he's jealous for personal reasons, but he's also jealous because it's what's best for us. The third thing then is he says, so if these things are true, you're going to slide into idolatry and, and the culture that you live in. You're going, to, you're going to kindle up the wrath of God. So just avoid the false gods. Avoid the false gods. And so the big question, the big question is, is how do we do this? How do we do this? And so if we look at these three values that our culture holds that really are supreme over everything, autonomy and freedom and independence from authority, um, the, the fulfillment and prosperity and happiness through the everyday things of, of work and money and family, and being good by doing good, if these are the three values, Jesus actually addresses each one. 
Jesus actually addresses each one. So on this issue of happiness and prosperity through autonomy and freedom, the parable in Luke 12 is is an excellent example of what happens here. And so it's the parable of the rich fool. And Jesus, there's, so there's kind of two applications in this. One of them is about money. But the, the first one that you see, I think, is this concern of autonomy and freedom. And so this man has a bumper crop. He has a bumper crop. And he looks out on all of the, the, the crops. He says, you know what? My grain bins are not going to hold this harvest. What am I going to do? He says, ah, I know. I'll tear down the old grain bins, and I'll I'll build more large bins. And then he says, then I will be happy and be able to carry out my days and not concern myself with God or hardship at all. That's what he says. And God says, you fool. Your life is required from you. What we see here in the rich fool is a sense that his happiness and his prosperity is completely of his own making. He does acknowledge the seeds that he plants the crops with. He does acknowledge the rains or the sun or the ground that the crops are growing out of. He doesn't, he, he doesn't see anything that contributes to his happiness and prosperity except his own self. That's what his language communicates. And so it's not that profit and and an abundant harvest, those aren't bad things, okay? The need to build larger grain bins for the capacity that you need, it's not a bad thing. It's not bad for this man to have an aspiration to live out his life happy and prosperous. Those are the things that... From Genesis to Revelation, God promises to those that love him. Where we see this man fail is that he does not acknowledge God in any of it. That's his failure. And so the point that Jesus makes here is simple, but if we're absorbed into our culture, we may even be simply be blinded to it. Acknowledge that we as human beings cannot live independent of God. He has created the ground from which we can grow plants. He's provided the seeds and the plants in the first place, the sun, the rain, the weather, all of the things that contribute. And I'm certain that this man didn't go out and harvest this all by himself. There are other people that are in and of themselves made in the image of God, that he should also be thankful for. So the first lesson, acknowledge that our lives are completely dependent upon God. If we do that, that will be a great first step in avoidance of our cultural tendencies. The second one, happiness and prosperity through work and family. And so let's hit work first. So Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is preaching. He said, listen, You guys, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about where you're going to live. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. God knows you need these things. Look at the flowers in the field. Not even Solomon himself adorned himself with such beauty as the flowers in the field. And the flowers are going to fade away. 
when the, when the seasons change. He says, how much more do I, does God care for you than he does the flowers of the field? Seek first the kingdom of God, he says. Seek first the kingdom of God. There is something bigger going on in this world and in God's purposes than our individual happiness and prosperity, what we're going to wear, where we're going to live, what we're going to eat. There's bigger things going on. God is moving his purposes towards a future end where Jesus will subject all rulers and authorities to himself and then hand the kingdom over to the Father. There are bigger things going on. We are not living outside of these bigger things. What can we do to contribute to the building of the kingdom of God? That should be our first and foremost priority. Jesus says, if you make that your priority, if you make that your priority, then everything that you need is going to be provided. And usually what God does is he provides way more than just what we need. I don't know of anybody in the church that is, is just getting by on the basics for food, clothing, and shelter. We are abundantly blessed by God. We are abundantly blessed by God. And so Jesus gives this teaching. He says, where your heart is, your treasure is also. Now, most people will, will say, okay, as soon as my heart is there, I'll start giving. As soon as I feel like giving, I'll start giving. Because Jesus is addressing money, which is, the, is what we get from our work, right? So we work and work and work to acquire things. And Jesus says, listen, pursue the kingdom, and you'll get what you need. Because it's all the Lord's. It's all God's. So again, we think that when I feel like giving, I'll start giving. But see, what Jesus is actually saying is, if you put your treasure, your heart's going to follow. Put your treasure in the kingdom, your heart will follow. I've, I've given this analogy before. If somebody were to give you $10,000 of Apple stock, okay, you may have probably, if you didn't have any Apple stock before that, you never would have looked at the market reports about how well Apple is doing. But if somebody gave you $10,000 of Apple stock, you'd start checking those market reports, right? Why? Because you've got $10,000. Now, this year, you'd have $7,500 at the end of the year, okay? <laughs> but it's still something that you have, still something that you have that you value. And so you're going to start paying attention to it. And so what God is saying is that, listen, start making investments into the kingdom of God, and you'll find that your heart and your affections are going to be drawn there more and more. Why? Because you're going to find that there's life there once you start investing there. That's how our affections are trained. See, we, we move in the direction of God, first of all, through faith, and with faith then comes obedience, and then from obedience comes the feelings. We tend to think in the opposite way. We want the feelings first, which is also part of the, the centuries of formation. And so we saw in the era of romanticism where the feelings were elevated, 
Feelings are what matters. Feelings are what's true, even. So we in, our, in ourselves, we, we think that truth is coming from within. And so if I'm not feeling it, then it's not authentically me. That's what we believe. If I'm not feeling it, then it's not really me. It's not true. Our sense of identity cannot come from how we feel about ourselves. Our sense of identity comes from the outside. God has made us in his image, and nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. That's a much stronger sense of identity than an identity that comes from within. So we have to, we have to build our lives on what is true, because our feelings are constantly deceiving us. And then our hearts will follow. Our hearts will follow. In family, you know, one of the Jesus, one of Jesus's, uh, I would say one of his most difficult, if not the most difficult statement. He says this. So we can't worship, we can't worship work, we can't worship money, and Jesus says we can't worship our families. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that sounds like a crazy statement. Now, we know that the Bible teaches to love our families. <laughs> it's in the Ten Commandments. It's in the Ten Commandments. And we know that this is actually one of the defining qualities of God's people, the nation of Israel, and also now the church, in that embedded within its legal code is this command to love and honor your father and mother. And we saw, as when we spent time on the Ten Commandments, that this was actually a recognition of the value that God puts on family. Generations. So we know that Jesus is not opposed to loving our families. But what he is saying here is that, and what he's observing, he, he knows that we as human beings will put before God our families. We will make our families God. We will devote ourselves to our families more so than we'll devote ourselves to God. We put too much weight on our family. And see, that is unloving towards God, and it's unloving towards our families. Because our families can't carry the weight of being God for us. They, they cannot be the source of our dignity. Really? I mean, I think I'm a great husband and father and neighbor, but if my wife and my children, I think I'm a decent pastor, but if my wife and my kids and you all said, you know, my identity is founded upon George, I would feel sorry for you because I'm a, a weak and pathetic person compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would I want any of you to put that weight on me? I wouldn't want the weight. I wouldn't want your lives to be governed and directed by me. That'd be a disappointing thing for you all. It's unloving to put the weight of God on your family members. Your family members can't avoid culture. Are you just going to follow your family wherever it goes? If there's such a human tendency to pursue, to follow in the culture's footsteps, we cannot follow our family members blindly. And you know something? <laughs> Everybody is somebody's brother or sister or mother or father. There is nothing special about a family member. 
Family members, brothers, sisters, mothers, they are all rapists and murderers and thieves and abusers. There's nothing special about family members. Everybody's a family member. God alone can carry the weight of being God. Our families can't do it. It's unloving to the, to, for them, and it's, and it's hurtful towards God, and it's hurtful towards ourselves. Our families cannot provide a sense of eternal worth. And so Jesus uses the word hate to shock us, to shock us. He's not telling us to hate our families. He's telling us if the contrast between the love for God and the love for your family, if there's not a massive contrast there, there's a problem. He knows, though, that when you fully love God, you're going to have the greatest ability to truly love your family, to sacrifice for your family. The last one, being good by doing good. I'm taking too long here today. I'm sorry. But the last one, being good by doing good. So this is redefining our sense of self or defining our sense of self based upon what we do. All right, so our, our sense of the good is now dependent upon us. And what happens is that we no longer define the good um, from, from objective reality. We define the good by us. And this is what the Pharisees did. So Jesus is talking with them, and he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herb. <clears throat> Excuse me. But you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So what happens if we think that we're good because we do good, we begin to think that what we do is now good. Whatever I do has got to be good because I'm a good person. And so this is what happened to the Pharisees. We are good people because we tithe our herbs. Can you imagine tithing your herbs? This is, their sense of self is coming from their herb garden. But you've neglected justice and the love of God. Love is sacrificing yourself for the good of others. And justice is living a life against unrighteousness and corruption, either in yourself, your family, your church, your neighborhood, society. The pursuit of justice is the pursuit of restoring things to a state of righteousness. But we can redefine good based upon what we do because we just sense, our culture says, I'm a good person. Therefore, what I do is good. That's what our culture does. It's easy to check the boxes of religion. If I do this, 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 and this, that means I'm a good person. It's very difficult to engage in a life characterized by justice and righteousness because it takes energy and sacrifice and time and money and sweat and hard work, and it's going to kill you. That's killed Jesus. So this is the warning that God has given to Israel and we know that Israel is going to fail. We know that Israel is going to fail. The first generation failed. The second generation's going to fail. We're going to see later in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is going to say, when you have been taken into exile, when you have failed to love God, when you've pursued idolatry, when the enemies have overtaken you, then return to God and love him. So 
Moses knows they're going to fail. We're going to see in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God is going to say, you need to circumcise your hearts. You need to, your hearts are hard. You need to cut them out, is what he's saying. And you need to replace it with a soft heart. So Deuteronomy 10, Moses is going to command Israel to do this. But later in Deuteronomy, what Moses is going to say is that eventually when you recognize, when you fail and you recognize that you can't do it, God is going to circumcise your heart. God is going to cut out your hardness. God is going to cut out your bitterness. God is going to cut out your stubbornness. And he's going to put in you a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a soft heart. He's commanded us to do it. We recognize we can't. God is going to have to do it. Israel shows us that we can't do it outside of what God does for us. We can't, we can't love God. Paul says we only can love God because God has first loved us. That change of heart has to happen. And the change of heart comes with the gift of Jesus Christ. With the gift of Jesus Christ. We may leave here today with this passion and desire to love God, to put aside false gods. And, and whether we're Christian or not, we're gonna, we will run up to, against our own flesh, our own desires. We're going to recognize that outside of knowing Jesus Christ and abiding in him, we can't do this. We can't do this. A greater love has to compel us. A greater love has to compel us. And that greater love is the gift that the Father gave to us of his Son. We couldn't follow God, we couldn't love God without our hearts being changed. And so the promise of the gospel is that when you run up against the fact that you can't do it on your own and recognize that you need to be transformed, then God is waiting. And the transformation is this. I believe that I am unable to love God fully to the extent that he's called me to. I try and I try and I try. I can't do it, so God, I come before you. I acknowledge my weakness. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge that I don't meet the standard that you've called me to. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. I need, I need the sacrifice and forgiveness of sins that he provides, and I need the new heart. And the new heart comes upon faith. The Bible says we receive the promised Holy Spirit, and that promised Holy Spirit comes into us, he regenerates us, and he washes us, and he gives us a new heart. And so that Spirit of God now lives in those who have believed in Jesus Christ. That new heart is now present. That, and that Spirit is now what needs to be fed. If we feed that Spirit, if we abide in Christ, Jesus uses that term abide. If we abide in Christ, we will bear fruit. We will love God. We will love others. And how do we do that? We, we, we learn and obey what God has commanded us. And that feeds the Spirit. And we will see, we will see that we will love God and that we will love others because Jesus Christ lives in us.
Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the strong words of Moses. God, thank you for um, the strong words of Jesus in really cutting to the heart of the, of the matter in our own hearts and minds where we, need, where we need the strong language to confront us because we do, we do give our lives to money. We do give our lives to security and the things of this world. We do, we do seek independence from authority. We do seek to make our own decisions outside of, of you and your calling upon our lives. God, we, we do put our hope in our family members. We do put our sense of identity in our family members. And God, we, we think that we're good because we do good things. God, we, we fail in every way that our culture fails. But Lord God, we are thankful that you've given us the spirit of Jesus Christ. You have transformed our hearts. And so God, I pray that you would indeed help us to abide in your word, in faith, help us to obey your commandments, that we may indeed feel the love that you have for us as well as experience the prosperity and happiness that you've always promised your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.